state and local governments continue to adopt new employment laws, regulations, and orders that affect the way employers hire, pay, and provide benefits to their employees. These changes sometimes leave small business owners questioning whether they have the right policies and procedures in place to meet these changing requirements. ADP offers an HR help desk to assist our clients in navigating their HR questions. We recently analyzed more than 65,000 help desk calls to find out what's top of mind. So welcome to HRpreneur, a podcast by ADP. This is Jim Duffy. Today's episode is sponsored by Google Ads by Upnetic. Now run, powered by ADP clients, have access to Google Ad Management and Optimization Services by Upnetic included with their run subscription. Today we'll talk about the most frequently asked HR compliance questions related to wage and hour laws, benefits and leave, performance management, and COVID-19 with Merrill Gutterman. Merrill is senior counsel here at ADP. Merrill, as always, it's great to have you on our show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me today. It's great to be here. So, uh, for our first question, business owners have been asking whether they can require a COVID-19 vaccination or a booster. So, can vaccinations be mandatory? Well, the federal EEOC, uh, which is the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has stated that federal laws don't prevent an employer from requiring all employees that physically enter a workplace to be vaccinated and boosted against COVID-19. This said, the employer still needs to offer a reasonable accommodation to employees who, either because of a disability or a sincerely held religious belief um, can or don't get vaccinated for COVID-19. And then in addition to federal law to complicate matters, there are several states that have adopted rules that restrict employers from enforcing COVID-19 vaccination mandates. Um, For example, in Florida, private employers are prohibited from imposing a COVID-19 vaccination mandate without providing specific exemptions for either medical reasons or religious reasons for COVID-19 immunity, or if the employer were to offer periodic testing and PPE use. Um, Many of these laws, including Florida's, have specific requirements for how to handle exemption requests. So you want to make sure that you're reviewing the requirements that apply to your business. Okay, so let's switch gears to another topic we're frequently asked about. Uh, If an employer needs workers quickly, you know, if they have to hire in a hurry, can they hire independent contractors for temporary work? So it depends. Um, In order to classify your worker as an independent contractor, you need to make sure that the working arrangement meets certain criteria that's established by federal and state tests. And unless you as the employer meet those requirements, the presumption is going to be that your worker is an employee. So, Merrill, how do you determine if a worker is an independent contractor or an employee? Um, Well, that's going to depend on the situation. So, there are a number of tests used to determine your worker's status um, under federal law. If you want to determine whether your worker is an independent contractor or an employee for federal tax purposes, you're going to want to apply the IRS common law test. Uh, For federal wage and hour purposes, you would use the Department of Labor economic realities test. Um, And then on top of that, your state may have additional and sometimes stricter tests that you need to use to ultimately assess whether your worker is going to be free enough from your control to be considered an independent contractor. 
Okay, so, so you've hired an employee and assume at some point they quit. So what if that employee or the former employee doesn't return company equipment? Can the employer withhold their final paycheck until they return it? So as a general rule, you can't withhold final pay until your employee returns company equipment. You have to meet the applicable final pay deadline even if the employee hasn't returned company property. All right. Another question business owners have been asking us is whether they can automatically deduct lunch breaks. What do you think? Well, it's really a best practice to require employees to clock out and then back in for their meal periods. Um, this can help ensure that employees are paid for missed lunch breaks, and it also accounts for time when employees might return late from lunch. Um, your time records should accurately reflect that the employee took a meal period, how long the meal period lasted, and the record should also accurately reflect the actual hours that are worked. Um, also, some states prohibit automatic deductions for meal periods, so you, again, want to make sure that you're checking your state law for compliance. Very good. Uh, so this next question is always a popular topic. Can employees use their already existing PTO policy to meet new state paid sick leave rules? Typically, yes. Um, as long as your PTO policy meets or exceeds the requirements of the most generous paid sick leave law that applies to your business, then you wouldn't need a separate sick leave policy. Um, this may require that you adjust your PTO policy to ensure that it's in line with all the requirements of the law. Um, and also, if you're a multi-jurisdictional employer, it might be helpful to have one PTO policy. That way you can track and administer paid sick leave across your business in a more efficient manner. Um, but if you go that way, there are a few things to keep in mind. Um, and one big thing to consider is what happens to payout at termination. Um, if you have a standalone paid sick leave policy, sick leave law generally doesn't require employers to pay out unused sick leave at the time of termination. But in some states like California, there is a requirement that unused paid time off be paid out at termination. So if you're bundling all your leaves, including sick leave, into a single paid time off policy, your state may apply the same rules as it does for accrued unused vacation or PTO, and those could require payout upon separation. So you want to make sure you're checking your state law um, and getting that right as far as payout. Got it. Uh, this next question is particularly timely. Uh, with more and more employees abandoning their jobs or calling out frequently, how should employers document it? I think the first thing employers need to do is to consider whether there are any extenuating circumstances that may have prevented employees from giving advance notice, um, such as if there was a serious accident or an emergency or an illness. Um, it's particularly important because the absence might be protected under a law um, where the employee may not be required to give advance notice. And if you were to take action against an employee for a protected absence or for failing to provide advance notice, um, you could be violating that law. So many employers will state that if employees fail to report to work without proper notice, then they might be subject to discipline. Up to and including termination, and that gives the employer some flexibility based on the specific facts and circumstances of each absence, and the employer can look at the severity of the offense and then also consider any past performance or conduct issues that may come into play. Um, and then as a practical matter, employers 
often have procedures in place to try to contact the employee before enforcing any no-call or no-show policy um, to make sure that they're in compliance. Um, and then think about, too, if you're addressing repeated violations, employers sometimes have a policy that states that after a certain number of consecutive missed shifts without notice, the company will consider the job abandoned, that the employee quit, that is. Um, and employers generally have discretion to determine how many consecutive absences without notice will be considered job abandonment, um, but typically it's three is the threshold number. And when you determine that your employee has abandoned their job or is subject to discipline for violating your policy, you want to make sure that you're notifying your employee in writing. Um, as with any employment decision, really, you want to make sure you're keeping adequate documentation just in case that employment decision is ever challenged. Um, or you need to support whatever future disciplinary action you're going to take. Very good. So, Merrill, for our last question, are employers required to maintain a sexual harassment prevention policy? Well, there are several states that do require that employers maintain a sexual harassment prevention policy. Uh, New York is one that comes to mind. Um, most recently, Oregon passed a law requiring um, that employers maintain a policy and also distribute a copy of the policy at the time of hire um, to their new hires. Um, and then on top of state requirements, also keep in mind that there may be case law out there or the State Department of Labor may also strongly favor a written sexual harassment prevention policy. Um, and the bottom line is it really is a best practice to have a written anti-harassment, written anti-discrimination policy in place. And then on top of that, also really important to train your managers and your employees. Um, there are some states, including California and Connecticut and Maine, for example, that require employers to prevent sexual harassment by providing training where they can. Um, California also requires training on abusive conduct to address misconduct in the workplace. Uh, all this said, yes, it's the best practice to have a written sexual harassment policy in place. Excellent. Thank you, Meryl. As always, I've really enjoyed our discussion today here on HRpreneur, and you know, we always appreciate your expertise, particularly on some of these most frequently asked questions uh, that come in through our HR help desk. Uh, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. Take care and be well.